Hey guys, what's up? It is week 282, and uh, you know what? Uh, this is being recorded Thursday this week, and tomorrow I'll be at Cinema Wasteland. Hopefully I'll have this up for patrons, but it will go live Wednesday, next Wednesday. Um, so my Wasteland stuff will not be in here. To be honest, I had to cut back on Wasteland because I am actually going to try to save some money for the October. I'm at the Vinegar Syndrome, you know, yearly thing in November. So I definitely want to do that. Uh, that subscription has always been, it's just amazing to do. So I guess, you know, money's tight. Rather spend it on subscription, buy a couple things here and there at Cinema Wasteland. Um, I, I'm sure it was a blast. But anyways, I'll just let you guys know, 1980, um, these are the last three I'll probably cover. There's still going to be some like 1980 in horror ones coming up. There's going to be four of them. Hell of the Living Dead, which probably will post before this video with James L. Edwards, Troy Haworth on Eaten Alive, which is really cool, Bruce Holchek on Cannibal Apocalypse, and last, Dave Z from the Exploding Heads podcast on The Shining. So those are the last four ones, some of the heavy hitters that I consider heavy hitters, ones I loved and watched on here before, at least three of those, three of the four. I um, won't tell you which one I just kind of like, um, not just kind of, but just like. Um, so yeah, I guess the first thing we're going to talk about is kind of massive, and the only problem I have with covering these box sets in like a bulk thing like this is sometimes you, I feel like the each individual film does not not get it's just you know it's justice so first and foremost we're going to talk about it from the the gothic fantastico four italian tales of terror and uh so the first one up is these are all black and white you know 60s italian gothic films some of which have a lot of name recognition but this first one this first one I feel is like semi kind of a lost film. This director also did The Bloody Pit of Terror and Terror Creatures from the Grave, which I've actually not had a chance to see. Bloody Pit of Terror, I think Severn put out recently, but this is Lady Morgan's Vengeance. And this one is super, super gothic. They're all very gothic. Um, it looks gorgeous. And like I said, Arrow did a great job on the remaster on this one. I had never seen it. I did not know much about it. Erica Blanca's in it. She's in a slew of these kind of Italian movies. But also I noticed Paul Mueller. And Paul Mueller is a guy I know mostly from stuff like uh, Jess Franco. From 1970, um, he was in like four or five of the Jess Franco movies that Franco made in 1970. He's like in all of them. And most particularly, he played Dr. Seward in um, Count Dracula. I think that is probably my favorite Jess Franco movie. So this one, um, the story is very tropey in the kind of typical kind of gothic sense. But um, it has a great, uh, you know, setting. They all do. That's the one thing about all these movies. You're going to hear me saying a lot of great atmosphere and setting regardless of you know if the plots work or don't for me and most of them work to a certain extent but sometimes they become somewhat repetitive that's just how these gothic films can be at times although i love them so like if anybody's not really familiar with any older gothic films like the one that i feel like you know lifts from this one the most is something like crimson peak where we have like the marriage and the setup marriage and people not trusting and murder and all that kind of stuff, but also a ghost story. So also uh, this would directly be compared to something like Mario Bava's The Whip and the Body, which I do see the comparisons here, which is also, you know, a murder story about gothic stuff and, you know, people inheriting, but also a ghost story at the same time. So um, Lady uh, Morgan's Vengeance. Okay, so we initially have Paul Mueller, who is kind of courting this uh, young woman who's a rich father, of course, and everything like that. But she has her eyes set on someone else. Um, this guy suffers from a poor accident, and he's kind of lost at sea. No one really knows what happened. So she kind of eventually marries Paul Mueller. But, uh, you know, kind of horrible things start to happen. A lot of gaslighting, a lot of things like that. And somebody ends up dead. So this old guy, um, the old flame, shows up remembering exactly what happens. And he enters this castle. And he enters the castle with a lot of, you know, uh, mischievous characters that you don't really trust, obviously. And um, he starts to get clues on what's happening. 
and eventually it leads him to understand what happened. And I think that this one is really cool and unique in the fact that a lot of these gaslighting stories, you know, or people tricking other people, there's always like a, a twist at the end where it's not actually a ghost or it's not actually something like this. There is a, a true, true supernatural angle to this one. Um, so, so I thought that was pretty cool. Now, I would rank this as third out of the four movies from the set. This is my third favorite. Um, the last two in the set are doozies. They're, they're really good and really strong films. So, yeah, as far as, you know, being lost, I thought it was very unique to see it, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Now, like I said, they do kind of bleed together at times, so bear with me. So as far as the special features are concerned, we have a brand new video introduction by Italian film devotee Mark Thomas Ashworth, and he talks. He does an introduction on all four. They're very informative. Brand new audio commentary by author and critic Alexander Hender Nicholas, and she's amazing. Like I've seen her on other stuff, but I was very impressed with what she had to say on this one too. And and these are perfect. Brand new video essay on film and author producer Kat Ellinger, who's also amazing. She has a documentary coming out this year, hopefully by, by about John Roland, which is a you know kind of an uh, director that's not. Not real, I mean, he's known by horror fans, but he's not talked about as much as he should be, and he's very prolific. Um, then we also have brand new interview with actress Erica Blanc, newly edited video interview with actor Paul Mueller, newly edited audio interview with director Massimo Pupolito, the complete original uh, Cinema Madganza, uh, Manzo, published in Suspense in April 1971. And we also have Reversible Sleeve here by Colin Murdoch. So, like I said, this one is interesting to a, to a certain point, and I did enjoy myself with it. But, like, it ranks as third. But, um, like, I like the gothic stories, but I like kind of, like, when we start to get into a more perverse area and stuff like that. Like Whip and the Body and the latter two films in here, the, th- the Third Eye and the Witch, I think, are some really strong stuff here. But, yeah, Lady Morgan's Vengeance. Good stuff. Uh, interesting. And it's lost. So that, that adds a point. Uh, as far as the remaster is concerned, it looks gorgeous. So if you're a fan of the film, because I know there was probably some crummy releases out there, bootlegs and stuff. If you're a fan of the film, this is the release to go for. Okay, the next one up in the set is the Blancheville Monster, a.k.a. Whore. And there's like tons of titles called Whore. There's a Dante Tomaselli movie called Whore. This is not it. This is the Blancheville Monster. And uh, yeah, this one is truly a gothic story here for sure. Like I could have said that every time. So this is actually by a director called Alberto Del Martino, who I think may be the most prolific in the horror genre amongst any of these guys in this set. I'm, now I'll get to all the, like, the last, and I'll forget the one director is like super prolific. But I've seen a handful of his movies, maybe like half a dozen, including The Killers on the Phone, The Telly Savalas uh, picture, um, Miami Golem with David Warbeck, but he also did Antichrist, which is probably his most popular film from 74, The Exorcist ripoff. And um, he did the kind of the omen kind of ripoff with Kurt Douglas, Chosen uh, Chosen 2000. What is it? Uh, it's kind of a reign of fire. It's a pretty good film as well. So Alberto Del Martino, is, he's a solid director. He also did Pumba Man which I know peep, there are probably fans of. I've never actually seen Puma Man. Um, come on, Arrow, I want to see Puma Man. I want to see um, Donald Pleasance in spandex. But uh, the Blancheville monster. So, again, we have a story where this young girl returns home, um, and, you know, her family is very strange. She disappeared for years, and she's approaching her 21st birthday. Now, this family believes in this strange curse, which I believe is kind of similar to what The Seven Deaths of the Cat's Eyes by Antonio Margariti. I believe they that family is some kind of a strange curse as well, if I'm not mistaken. That's a very typical thing. Um, her brother's name in the movie is Roderick. Right away, you're like, okay, Roderick Usher. Um, you know, you're thinking Poe. You're thinking all these kind of things here. And um, if I'm not mistaken, I, I, I'm going to mix up the special features on here. 
I think the Cat Ellinger special feature, the video essay, was kind of the brilliant one where it mixes like Amicus, talks about Amicus and Mario Bava kind of being the, not Amicus, sorry, the Corman post cycle and um, Mario Bava kind of being the main inspiration for tons of these kind of pictures to be made in Italy like that too, so which I think is more so and I think it's really cool too. So yeah, you can definitely see it in here. You definitely see Poe. You definitely see the murder mystery here. To me, this movie is, is really well shot. It has great atmosphere, you know, and that keeps you going till the very end. And there's a couple twists and turns and everything like that, but it's not exactly the most unpredictable movie. It's not the most, you know, um, amazingly, you know, interesting film either. I feel like we've seen this kind of story before and it's decent. Like, I, I like it. I don't love it. I would recommend checking it out, um, especially because the director behind it has a, has a nice resume of horror films, different types of horror films as well. A lot of kind of like cash-ins are rip-offs, yet they still stand out on their own to be good films, which is kind of rare. But this one, you know, it has its moments, and the disfigured uh, father in the film is pretty cool because, you know, he comes, she comes back, and she's worried about the 21-year-old curse. No females ever live past 21. And, like, the father, the the, uh, the patriarch of the family is running around. He's been disfigured, and he's all deformed, and he's running around, and people are ending up murdered. But, of course, there's going to be some twists and turns and stuff with discoveries of some certain bodies. Anyways, I thought this one was my... I'm going to rank it for. I don't know why I'm ranking them and decided to rank them, but that's just the way it's going to be. Um, this is probably my least of the four. Again, it looks fantastic. You know, a lot of Nero handles their remasters, and then especially in, like, black and white stuff, it always looks fantastic. So, here we go here. A brand new video introduction again by Mark Thomas Ashworth. Brand new video audio commentary by filmmaker and film historian Paul Anthony Nelson. Brand new video essay on film writer and pop culture historian Keith Allison. Brand new video interview with author um, and filmmaker Antonio Tatori. See, now, the one thing here is, um, they, they, in fact, in the special features, they mentioned this is may not be the most exciting of the gothic films, yet it still carries a certain interest, and I would agree with that. You know, that's the Blanche monster aka whore which and honestly i've been waiting for a good release of this movie for a long time before i watched it so it's nice to finally check put that off the checklist right okay the next one up boy oh boy was i impressed with this one and this is the third eye now this is right up my alley this is you know gothic but it has a psychological aspect to it right it's heavily inspired by psycho and if anybody can tell me who that is on the very front right there, that is Franco Nero in this kind of movie. Now, Franco Nero, like the same year or a year later, 66, would go on to be in Django by Sergio Carbucci, and his life would change, right? You know, he's in, you know, you see Franco Nero for me. I think of him from the Euro crime movies, from the spaghetti westerns, from even latter day stuff popping up in cameos or Force Ten the Navarone. You think of Franco Nero Die Hard Two as a different kind of a tough guy almost, or you know that kind of cool suave action kind of guy, silent. You know, kind of a Clint Eastwood type. So when I saw him in this movie, like he plays this Norman Bates type character who's obsessed with taxidermy right away. He has a domineering mother. He's getting ready to marry this woman and the mother will not have it. She does not like her. And on top of that, the maid of the family is obsessed with poor Mino. And the writer, I think the director of the movie's name, the writer-director is named Mino, too. So that's like, it's, it seems very personal, to be honest. So and she's obsessed, uh, you know, the mother's obsessed with Mino. The, 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 obviously, the fiancé loves Mino. And then we have the housekeeper who's obsessed with Mino. So this is not going to end well. Although he is handsome and nervous and weird, he, he, I, he does taxidermy. So it's like strange, strange, strange. The mother really wants nothing, doesn't want Mino to have this, too. And the maid's going to get in between them and make that matters worse. Now, you may be thinking, weird kid with a Norman Bates uh, kind of complex and a maid that's obsessed with the son, yada, yada, yada. 
you're going to think this sounds like another movie, and, and it absolutely does. This is kind of like the uh, uh, there was an unofficial or maybe semi-official remake in 1979 by legendary you know director Joe D'Amato in Beyond the Darkness or Blue Omega uh, is how you maybe say it in Italy, Italian, which is not right. But I absolutely love that movie. It's a gritty, nasty, dirty movie that makes me gag and has an amazing music. This is like the classy version of Beyond the Darkness, which is very cool that there is a classy version of Beyond the Darkness starring fucking Franco Nero of all people. So, yeah, anyways, what happens is tragedy strikes and he loses his mother in, you know, Ed Gein fashion and his fiance in the same day. And the maid starts to move in on him and they start to make an unhealthy deal where he has these sexual hangups and he's obsessed with embalming. So so use some pieces here what's going to happen. Um, and eventually, you know, somebody shows up related to his fiance that he's going to have a develop uh, feelings for. It's a, it's a really wild and crazy movie. And the way that it ends was really kind of unique with the way the police officer handled it. I didn't expect that. And it's. It's actually kind of refreshing when you compare it to stuff like Psycho. Like, I mean, not that Psycho, I'm not trying to say this is better than Psycho, but you know, because everybody always laughs at the ending with Simon Oakland's like, whoa, actually, what? it's just weird, like how the psychology is used from the cop. I'm like, that's kind of cool and different. And nowadays, probably a cop wouldn't do that for you. But hey, it is what it is. Um, yeah, Franco Nero's fantastic in it. Um, everybody's really solid in it. And just like genuinely, it's really interesting to see this movie. And like, this is a great, this is the kind of gem that you would look for, you know, just the, the puzzle piece here. This is a puzzle piece. I always talk about this in horror movies like you know you have that big wall of pieces you know of puzzles and, and like you're like you got to fill it in and this is just one that i didn't know was missing and it was you know it, it's just interesting enough and way a different time and just that kind of heavily inspired by psycho psychological gothic weird um perverse much more perverse than the other ones um maybe the latter one has it too but yeah anyways good stuff the the third eye as far as the special features are concerned again we have uh an um introduction by uh mta it's his new name now. Brand new audio commentary by author and critic Rachel Nisbet. Brand new video essay, one time uh, by author and filmmaker Lindsay Hollum. And newly edited video interview with actors Eric Blanc. Again, popping up in these special features. So yeah, um, this is definitely tied for the first place. I'll, I'll give it a tie. I think that the this and the other one are a tie because they're so much you know, different, but yet uh, great at the same time. Okay, and the final one from the Gothic set is going to be The Witch. And um, so, so I started this bad boy. I didn't know much about it. I knew the name in passing. And I'm like 10 minutes in and I'm looking, man, man, that guy looks a lot like Richard Johnson. And, you know, I know Richard Johnson from his latter days, you know, zombie and, you know, and how could I ever forget Dr. Menard? I've seen zombie 50 times. So I'm like, yeah. And then I'm like, it is Richard Johnson. He looks young and he's handsome. And I was just like, this is so freaking cool. So yeah, this is a really kind of way ahead of its time. I could see people saying this is kind of like a feminist horror film here. Although maybe the ending changes that a little bit, to be honest. But uh, a really cool, unique witch story, right? So we have this uh, chauvinistic He's a little older. He's like probably approaching middle-aged guy. He's probably middle-aged. Um, so he sleeps around with a lot of women. He doesn't ever have any, you know, he's not faithful to any of them. He, he goes for all of them. And he starts to notice this kind of, um, this woman watching and this older woman out and, you know, outside. And he, he starts to get hung up on it. And eventually he follows her to a place and he wonders, she goes to the newspaper stand, he starts to talk to her and he realizes that she put an ad out. And this ad, um, everything about the ad, he's, the, he's like, I'm the only person that that ad is called called for you know he does this library work he's just the perfect guy for the ad and he's like she's doing it on purpose so he ends up going there 
and he meets her. And um, at first, he doesn't seem very interested in to be the librarian to sort her husband, her late husband's memoirs. It's just not his thing. He's like, no, nah, this is weird. I don't want to do it. But he's still talkative because he's trying to find a price. But then he meets her young daughter who's there. And being the guy he is, he becomes completely infatuated with them. And they start to lure him and tell him that the old librarian is going to be fired. And the old librarian is played by um, uh, Maria Vellante, who's in great stuff like A Citizen Above Suspicion for a few dollars more and Fistful of Dollars. Yes, we're talking about the guy with the fucking stockwatch in For a Few Dollars More and Citizen Above Suspicion. Uh, uh, he's... He's a great actor. You know, I've seen, I've heard people say he's like Italy's like one of his best actors, if not the best. He's just one of the best, right? And he is this like haggard librarian. And as the story starts to unfold, it becomes this warped, fucked up love triangle kind of between uh, Vellante and Richard Johnson and the, the young woman here. But it's more complicated than that. You know, there's a duality among women and women in general, and they really tackle that really well. Way ahead of its time, way more way more intelligent than you would expect. And I, I don't mean that gothic films aren't intelligent because we have Whip in the Body. We have lots of great gothic films that are highly intelligent, but this has way more going for it. And, and in fact, when you sit to talk about it, you're just like, yeah, this is actually really fucking interesting. This is really different. This is really weird, and uh, it's really well acted and shot and looks gorgeous, and it's just creepy, you know, and it's good. It's a good witch story. It, it's quite good, to be honest. It, you know, is it better than The Third Eye? I put them kind of on the same level, but it might have the edge. It might have a little bit of an edge. So um, as far as the special features are concerned, we have Mark Thomas Asworth, brand new audio commentary by author and producer Kat Ellinger, who's one of my favorite people to hear, especially on something like this. She's perfect for it. A brand new video essay on film uh, by film author and academic Miranda um, Corcoran. Cor- uh, Cor- I'm sorry, uh Corcoran. That's a bad name for me to say. Brand new video interview with author and filmmaker Antonio Titori. So yeah, and we got the reversible art by um, Colin um, Murdoch as well. Now I should mention this book here and the poster because um, there's a lot of contributors on here as well. Um, Tons of stuff. And uh, yeah, um, we have uh, Roberto Curti, Rob Talbot, Jerome Ruder, who um, always posts a lot of cool things about you know his movie activities and stuff on Facebook. Rod Barnett and Kimberly Lindsberg on all these different little essays and everything like that. So it's a great set. Again, I can't sing the praises enough when Arrow does these sets. Um, Years of Lead, I loved. Vengeance Trails, I loved. Uh, and, and like, let's put it this way. Like, I love when they do the sets and the combos. Sometimes, like, I don't love everything in them. Like, if we get to these, like, regional directors, there'll be, like, two or three hidden gems in there, and the rest are, are very, you know, eh. But they give you a look at the filmmaker's career. They give you a look at a place in history. And uh, some of them are truly great. Like, the Blood Hunger set by Ho- with the Jose Larraz set, the American Horror Project. These sets are fucking wonderful. And I-, I would put this Gothic set up there, too. Because there are four movies that, like... They, a couple have reputations. One's kind of lost. One is by a fairly prolific horror director. So, I mean, it's a nice set. Nice hard box. Recommend. Very cool. In the running for one of my favorite releases of the year. You know, like, all the movies, they range from, like, like three to three to four stars out of five. You know, stuff like that. Maybe two and a half for the Blanchfield Monster. But, like, as a package, as a whole, it's real cool shit. Okay, this next one. I'm going to be... I'm not going to talk about the special features. Because I, I, I didn't get a chance to watch them. But one of my friends was over, and he we were talking, and uh, we I just put on Day of the Dead because it was the day after my, it was like my birthday celebration day after. And I was like, well, you don't want to put in Day of the Dead, my favorite movie. Just watch that a little bit. And we're talking about Romero a little bit, and uh, I was like, yeah, Creep Show. He had never seen Creep Show. I was like, it's approaching Halloween season. 
You've never seen Creepshow. I've never watched my uh, Blu-ray from Scream Factory. And I was like, we got to put in George A. Romero's Creepshow from 1982, the classic. The first or second most popular horror anthology of all time. It's either that or Trick or Treat, which is probably uh, very beloved at this point. But uh, yeah, I'm a Creepshow guy. Um, I absolutely love George Romero. Everybody knows how much I love George Romero. This is actually, it feels very Romero, but it feels a little different. So um, this is heavily inspired by the EC comics of the 50s. You know, those were Tales from the Crypt, Haunt of Fear, um, and Vault of Horror. And these shock suspense stories, these stories would go on to be made into amicus pictures in the 70s. Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, From Beyond the Grave, etc., etc. And then eventually, you know, they would have the Tales from the Crypt television series. But George Romero and Stephen King, who is the writer behind this, were heavily inspired to make Creepshow. And it's like a comic book. It's an anthology. Five stories in a wraparound. Tom Savini does the special effects. We have Michael Gornick, I believe, doing the cinematography. We have John Harrison doing the score. Now, John Harrison, if you listen to his Day of the Dead score, is compared to his Creepshow score. You'll realize how versatile he is and how much he can change it up and how much he can make almost like a score that fits perfectly for a movie and every moment. Like, he, he makes these, like, motifs and stuff. I know that's how you're supposed to do it, but a lot of people don't. They just play synth music or crazy music and the director. But I feel like John Harrison is, like, actually scoring every fucking movie. The score in Creepshow, super memorable. So here we go. The Right from the wraparound opening story, we have the animation, we have the pumpkin, we have Tommy Atkins beating his kid played by Joe Hill, Stephen King's real kid. So it's just like, yes, iconic in the first five minutes, we use a real skeleton at the window staring in at the kid. As he opens his creep show comic and starts looking at his comics got thrown away, he's upset, so we hear all these different stories in the comics. I think we go right to the garbage and we kind of look into it. So um, the first story is uh, a bizarre one, but you'll recognize right away Ed Harris, who is in the year previously in George Romero's Night Riders, in a very funny role. It's called Father's Day. The short, uh, uh, infamous for you know his dance, uh, Ed Harris's dance. So, so we kind of have this weird structure thing where everybody's waiting to get together for Father's Day of a deceased uh, patriarch of a family who is an abusive piece of crap, and uh, the new member of the family who just married in. Here's kind of the backstory of what happened to him and who are they waiting for and all this kind of stuff. While the corpse of the dead, you know, patriarch comes back to life uh, using his telekinetic powers and you know dismembers everybody and kills them and he got his cake very fun very classic ec very you know putty zombie walking around uh just great atmosphere great music cool stuff so then we go to the second story here which is probably the most divisive and this is the one starring stephen king himself um uh what with the growing i can't remember the name but meteor shit is what we'll call it you lunkhead so stephen king plays an absolutely over-the-top performance in fact everybody in this movie is um cranked to 11 stephen king is cranked to 15 so he plays this country kind of bumpkin where a meteor crashes and he touches it and it's this weird growth starts to go on him and he can't stop it. We have the funniest flashback of all time. We have multiple flashbacks, all of which are the same actor, which is very unique and fun. And it ends on a super downbeat, you know, kind of just very self-aware of its darkness and funness at the very end. Expect lots of rain with moderate temperatures. Love it. So then we get to the third story, which is my personal favorite story here. I'm just running down the stories and talking about them a little bit because, hey, it's a fucking anthology and I don't know what else to do. As a whole, it's a beautiful movie. I love all five shorts in the wraparound. So we get to um, something to tide you over, which to me has the best cast. We have Leslie fucking Nielsen, Ted Danson, and Galen Ross. Galen Ross, Dawn of the Dead. 
Uh, everybody knows Ted Danson, Cheers, and Leslie Nielsen. You know, before, you know, uh, this is after Airplane. Airplane was, what, 80, I think? But, you know, before he was the kind of, like, straight-faced comedy guy, you know, Leslie Nielsen did lots of different films, lots of serious roles, the uptight kind of guy. If you ever watch Day of the Animals, he takes on a grizzly bear without his shirt on. Um, pure cinema. So, the thing about Leslie Nielsen in this movie, this is one of my favorite stories. I feel like The Ledge, which Stephen King also wrote, is very similar to. We have this kind of, that's when um, Kevin, Kenneth McMillan, the Cat's Eye movie, kind of does the same thing Leslie Nielsen does, but to a lesser crazy extent. So, Leslie Nielsen is obsessed with water. He's obsessed with uh, VCRs and technology. He's just a douchebag. He finds out that Ted Danson is currently sleeping with his wife. This upsets him greatly, so he decides to do his awful, awful trick to both of them. Not trick, a murder. And, and the way it's done is brilliant. The way it's edited is brilliant. But of course, this is there's going to be just desserts, which is also the name of the feature-length documentary of Creepshow. So what happens is uh, amazing special effects, um, lots of great one-liners. Leslie Nielsen steals the show. He is over the top. He is crazy. He is ruthless. Um, he has some of the best one-liners ever. I can hold my breath for a long time. It's just a, a brilliant moment. And Leslie Nielsen's perfect for this role. I don't. He's my favorite character in the movie. I don't think anyone else could top. Leslie Nielsen in this movie and do yourself a favor now it does have similarities to the first one right they're zombies coming back but they have a great gurgle it's showtime just endless quotes for this one um and I should mention a lot of the times when the 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 kind of stingers hit the colors go crazy right kind of like a comic it zoom back and you'll see different colors in the left the right and you'll you'll change panels and like you'll say I have Leslie Nielsen in blue screaming you'll have somebody else screaming in red it's just a fucking awesome all right it's fucking amazing so then the fourth story the great now this is also one of the more popular stories of the bunch and the longest it has uh Fritz Weaver gay um uh geez I can't believe I am um forgetting um freaking um hall hall brick and why can i not adrian barbeau married to john carpenter at one point so that's that's just in this one all great um so so what happens is hall hall brick is kind of a meek man who is married to billy or wilma call me billy um and she constantly badgers him and adrian barbeau constantly badgers him she's a drunk she just openly flirts with other people just embarrasses him he's a hot he's a college professor as is his best friend fritz weaver fritz weaver is older but he sleeps with a lot of younger students so that's not particularly good either so so what happens is um um uh, one day uh fritz weaver uh, the janitor finds a crate from an antarctic expedition underneath you know the stairs and they decide to open it, and what's in it is a fucking Yeti. And Tom Savini absolutely loved doing the design on this. You know, Savini was known for, you know, the Sultan of Splatter is what he would refer to himself or other people would. But Savini liked doing monsters. He liked doing makeup. So when he he really took the, uh, you know, initiative in this, and he did a fucking great job on, you know, I think they call him Furry. Furry, what is his name? I can't remember. Um, so they did a great job on the Yeti. He's absolutely terrifying. So when the Yeti starts to attack people, there's splurts of gore, like the teeth marks and the ripping. It's excellent, and the twist is excellent as well. Hull Hallbrick is, you know, very reserved, but in a, a very great performance here, and uh, it just he's really good in it. And his his, you know, fantasies of you know dismembering and killing his wife are absolutely brilliant and done very, very hilariously. And then finally, we get to the last story. They're creeping up on you with E. G. Marshall from classic films like The Chase, Twelve Angry Men. Um, and another Romero movie, Two Evil Eyes. I don't know if they call that a classic, but it's a pretty solid movie. A little underrated. So you got E.G. Marshall here, right? Uh, great actor. Great. And this feels like possibly slightly futuristic. Remember in like 
there would be a time in the 80s when like like oh there's an electrical storm everything's going down like alone in the dark or or chopping mall or hey it's electrical storm everything's going crazy it wasn't pulse that movie that i've never seen pulse but i feel like pulse is that too so basically he lives in this high-rise apartment he's just a ruthless businessman he's a clean freak he's like a howard hughes right he's obsessed with neatness he hates cockroaches and he keeps seeing cockroaches all through his apartment for some reason in this super ultra white you know stanley kubrick looking fucking backdrop so he's completely obsessed with like killing these cockroaches and you see his interactions with the people that work for him he actually gets a guy to commit suicide because he's so ruthless um and, and i think it's david early out there kind of like fucking with him a little bit i know mr pratt and it's just hilarious but eg marshall couldn't be a bigger bastard if he tried he's hilarious because he's so evil the lines he says in this film are next level douchebaggery um it will, you'll be taking, you better get here soon. You'll be taking your kids to Disneyland next year on your fucking welfare check. It's just shit. You're just like, oh my God, it's so awful. You can't do anything but laugh because otherwise you'll cry. But he's tremendous in this movie. Um, and what happens, of course, you know, the roaches keep piling up and piling up until a giant gorgag. Jeez, these roaches are so gross. They're big. There's like flying ones. Cockroaches are disgusting, especially when you put them on a backdrop of white, especially when you put them inside somebody. So anyways, we got our five stories. I know I went a little bit more in depth, but it's fucking Creepshow, right? And then we have the final stinger at the very end. Um, we have two, you know, Romero regulars. We have Savini at the garbage truck. And um, geez, the line that really cracked me up this time when uh, they're, they're like kind of looking in the garbage and they find the Creepshow book and they're talking and the one guy's like, it's a comic book. And they're wearing headphones. And he's like, it's, he's like what? It's a comic book. What? And this video's like, it's a comic book. That part, if you've seen the movie, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Cracked me up. Hilarious. Um, but yeah, that's just a perfect little stinger here. Oh, I got this pain in my neck. So anyways, as far as special features like concerned, which I didn't watch, which means I did a half-assed job here. We have a new 4K scan. Um, approved by DOP Michael Gornick. Commentary by Gornick. New tear on the Three Rivers. A roundtable discussion with members of the cast and crew of Creepshow. New comic book look. An interview with costume designer Barbara Anderson. New colors of Creepshow. A look at the restoration of Creepshow with Michael Gornick. Audio commentary with director George Romero and special effects artist Tom Savini. Audio interviews with Michael Gornick and John Applis. Uh, property master Bruce Allen Miller. And makeup effects assistant Daryl Fatucci. Tom Savini's behind-the-scenes footage, Horror Hollows Grounds, a look at the original locations today, deleted scenes, theatrical trailer, TV spot, radio spot, still galleries, and more. And this bad boy has a little comic in there, I believe, as well, with Fluffy on there and all the characters of Creepshow. Michael Gingold? No, it's just a little book here. He's talking about a lot of stuff. I thought it might have been like a comic, kind of a little small comic adaptation. No, it's just a little book here anyways. But uh, I can't sing the praises enough about Creepshow. George Romero, Stephen King. Tom Savini. Come on, guys. Okay, this next one here is the Patreon pick. And it was uh, Jim Simon. He said, any Cronenberg movie you haven't covered on here yet? So um, I was looking over at my my 4Ks, and I realized I had never seen Crash from 1996 by David Cronenberg. I know. This is bad. This is a lot of heavy hitters in here, right? So Crash. Cronenberg, um, one of the all-time great horror directors. Crash, not necessarily horror, but most certainly body horror. Uh, the cast in here is great. You got James Spader. Um, geez, Elias Cotez, Holly Hunter. There's other people that pop up in here as well. Um, boy, I don't know how to go about this. Um, Crash is a movie that I probably should have watched two or three times before I talked about it. While I was watching it, I had a sense of uncomfortability and a sense of ultra respect for the actors involved. And we're looking at Elias Cotez I knew was down. Because that guy is nuts. Like, not in real life, but, like, as far as his acting, like, I just recently watched Desperate Hours, the remake, and he's in that. He's Him and David Moore steal the show over Anthony Hopkins and make your work for me. They steal the show. Um, 
And Elias Kotas is just—he's got a special quality about him, right? Um, even when I was a kid, I saw him as Casey Jones. He's the best part of that movie. I'm sorry, it just is. It's fucking Casey Jones. So I'm watching this, and um, so James Spader one day, um, him and his wife—they seem to fool around a lot, sleep around a lot. They seem to have an open relationship to a certain extent. Um, they're into sexual things, a lot of sexual stuff. Um, on the way home from work one day or wherever he's going, James Spader gets in a car accident and the people he crashes into, um, one of which dies, a husband, they seem to have, you know, some previous scars on them, like a car emblem or something like that embedded on his hand. Holly Hunter's the other person. And when he goes to the hospital, he starts to have like, maybe even like a weird awakening when he has that accident with Holly Hunter, you know, like a, you know, a sexual awakening to an extent and before long he is like introduced to this underground world of people that have a sexual obsession with car accidents um rosetta arquette's also in here and i can't think of the actress who plays james spader's wife she's also excellent so into this world of fucking fetishism and and it's so weird and bizarre and elias kotes is kind of like the front runner of this he's all scarred up he's got a weird demeanor he's got a, a beat up old nasty car and as it goes on, it got more and more fucked up, more sexually explicit. And by the end of it, I was just like, you know what? I have an all new respect for James Spader and Elias Cotes. That was just a, a crazy role to do. And, you know, James Spader is, you know, I always thought he was a good actor from New Kids to Wolf to anything he's in. He's solid Stargate. But this was an all new, like, eye opening experience. And seeing, like, Eliza Cotes, too, like, you know, he's not your typical actor. He's, like, a handsome guy, but you don't really expect him to be, like, this almost like this Marv from Sin City type looking character and just, like, have this super, like, sexual prowess about him. It was kind of fucked up and disturbing the way the, the whole thing unfolded. And it's just uncomfortable as hell. And there's a scene in here where somebody's taking pictures of a car accident that two seconds of that scene is, is better than anything in Nightcrawler. I know people love Nightcrawler. I have my hangups on Nightcrawler, but the best scene is when when he films the accident with uh, Bill Paxton or whatever that scene is, is probably the strongest. And I think this scene outdoes it. So like there's parts when they go down the whole, like their obsession with these celebrity, like car accidents. And they go down this whole list and stuff. And they talk about, you know, I'll do so. And so it's just, it's completely screwed up. And that scene where Elias Cotez registers what's happening and he's filming it and you see the glee in his eyes. It just was very disturbing. Um, and they go places here that I, I would cross into the body horror category. You know, a lot of these people have a lot of injuries and sometimes scars and injuries can, uh, you know, be used for other things instead of, you know, I don't know, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, this is, this is weird. This is nuts. This is nuts. Like, I can't believe I hadn't seen this. It was one that I was saving for a long time. We'll watch again. We'll show other people to watch them watch it and just be like this. Huh? Huh? If that makes any sense. So the blue, the 4K looked fantastic. Like all the greens, there's a lot of like shots. It just it looked so crisp. Looked fucking excellent. I, I just couldn't take my eyes off it for a lot of the film. There's tons of features on here. I didn't get a chance to pop them all in. I did listen to the Howard Shore special features. And when he goes in, Howard Shore, you know, is longtime composer of David Cronenberg. Excellent. You know, did The Fly. Did so many good movies. I think he did The Brood too. I mean, like he... It's one of the best when it comes to this shit. So he starts talking about everything that he did. And he made it a very, you know, uh, crazy, different, unique score, experimental. And you can tell, like, something was off. When I heard the score, and I don't mean that as a negative, it felt off. Like, it made me kind of like, oh, I don't feel good. Like, I feel off. It feels like the score is off. And I mean that as a compliment because it fits the fucking movie. It's off. It's off. You know, it's just not right. This isn't right. But really excellent movie. And I suggest everybody checks out Crash. The 4K looks excellent for Mero. All right, guys, we're going to hop into those 1980 movies. They did this to you! They're trying to turn us against each other! 
Just look at them. What do they know about friendship, anyway? I'll get them. You watch. I'll take care of those sons of bitches. Watch it, Alan. I'm shooting. Oh, good Lord. It's... It's unbelievable. It's... It's horrible. I can't understand the reason for such cruelty. It must have something to do with some obscure sexual writer. With the almost profound respect... Getting very careless. Blood in your hair. What will we do? You want to look pretty, don't you? Pretty for me. I can't believe you're not afraid. All you have to do is piss on it. Could he care blood, ain't you? God damn it, Ralph, get out of here. Go on, get. Leave people alone. You'll never come back again. Oh, shut up, Ralph. It's got a death curse. Evil. Gone, my leg. Gone, my leg. I'm here. You're here. There's a bug bank out there. Messenger of God. You're doomed if you stay here. Demanding everything, including blood. John, I want this material burned. All of it. Son of a bitch. Wendy. Stay away! Darling, light of my life. I'm not gonna hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. I'm gonna bash them right the fuck in. <laughs> well, Dad, are you proud of me now? Do I measure up? Huh? My son, my son was a son of a bitch. And he was no good. That's it. My son is dead. I don't want to talk about him no more. <sighs> Oh, Sandy, you're gonna die. Mater Lacrimarum. Ma'am. Mater Tenebrum. We didn't find any boy. Mater Suspiriorum. You know as well as I do, it takes all kinds of critters to make farmer Vincent fritters. (laughs) I wonder who the real cannibals are. All right, and the first one up is from the Tasso trilogy, um, and this is boy, oh boy, if I can get it out of this box set. This is a, a Seijon uh, Suzuki movie. I've covered one of the box sets he had. 
uh, before the Arrow put out. But this last one from night, this one from 1980, as bear with me, Zeiger Uzerweisen, which is like uh, I believe in the film, it's actually an album, a German album that uh, two characters listen to and share. Um, this is this is going to be a difficult one to talk about, right? It is a Japanese film. It's two hours and twenty four minutes. It's an epic. It's part of a trilogy, and this is more of like a surreal, strange film. Now it's listed as a horror film on certain places, you know, like I think Letterbox or Internet Movie Database. One of them listed as a horror film. The director obviously had name recognition with me. He's a cult director. He used to work for Nakatsu, Nakatsu Rodic, not not the Rodic, but Nakatsu. And I was just like, oh well, I know his films. I know that he has a reputation that's good. And this one sounds super interesting. Um, it's an epic. It's long, like. I said it's beautiful to look at and it follows the story of these kind of two professors complete opposites polar ends one is just like this drifter who's weird and untrustworthy and dangerous and scary and just and one is more like the uptight variety but you know they kind of share like a love triangle at times and it's just a weird movie a lot of like stuff that doesn't logically make any sense but it's like you know surreal to the point where you know a lot of the characters are standing on the bridge that have been an entire film watching fireworks while the other ones are walking and it's just an uncomfortable bizarre experience like I don't know how to go about it I don't even know how to review it I don't even know what the hell to say so like when I went to talk about this one I was just like I'm so lost with what to do on this but then like you hear like the introduction and the the historians talk about the the Tony Ray's reigns and talk about the stuff too and you're just like well I'm not the only one these are these are confusing and they're they're meant to be that way they have feel like themes and and stuff that pop up and you can correlate them together you know to a certain extent but as the as you go to talk about it as a whole it's kind of like you know I don't want to say David Lynch because I feel like I could follow David Lynch easier because it's more westernized for me at least to the point where it's in the, the right language not right language but the English so I feel like a lot of that kind of translates a little better but this one I thought was a very good looking movie I thought it was very interesting I thought that it had a wonderful, you know, moments and creepy moments, but I don't know if I'd call it 100% a horror film. I'd call it absurdist. I'd call it surrealistic, and I'd call it different. Um, I did it. I did like it. I just can't see myself revisiting this one too often, to be honest. So it's a bizarre film. I don't want to say the title again. Don't make me. You're not the boss of me. I'm not doing it. Zeiger Weiger Weisen. That's not right, but it is for today. Okay, the next one. Um, bear with me because the, the weird, like all the different things in here, I want to make sure I get it right. It's Peppy, Lucy, Bomb, and Other Girls Like Mom. And it has a different AKA title. So this is by Pedro Almodovar. And this isn't a horror film. This is listed as kind of like a comedy cult film. I think this is his first feature-length directorial film. And, you know, I've seen a couple Pedro Almodovar movies. I've seen, of course, only The the Skin I Live In, the one with Antonio Banderas, which is a really wild movie, and I would call more of a horror film for sure. And 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 then kind of like Eyes Without a Face kind of variety. So, Pepe... This is a fucking weird movie. Within the first five minutes, it fits 1980s uh, MO. Somebody gets raped, loses their virginity. So uh, there's this awful police officer that spots some marijuana plants in this girl's window, goes across the street and says, hey, I want those windows down, rapes her um, in exchange so she won't be arrested. It's kind of played bit bit for comedy. You know, Pedro Almodovar, he's a very transgressive filmmaker, very, you know, queer friendly filmmaker. He's he's homosexual like and he has a or queer um filmmaker. I don't know what exactly. But a lot of his films have these weird crazy elements and he always pushes the boundaries and brings up these questions where it's like a flirting of a line of art and exploitation. That's kind of his thing from what I've seen. And this one uh, no no difference. It has like a super punk rock aesthetic. It has a wild kind of aesthetic and wild kind of tone and, and weird tone and just all over the place. Uh, uh, you know, anarchy tone, I would say to a certain extent. So what happens is 
she wants revenge, so she has her punk rock band beat him up, but it's his twin brother. So it complicates things. Anyways, they start to uh she starts to court or starts to talk to, you know, the police officer's wife, who is a masochist, and she ends up leaving her husband for them, which complicates matters. It gets weirder, it gets crazier. There's a dick measuring competition in the middle of this film. There's a lot of strange, weird, bizarre characters dancing and yelling and saying strange things and having these emotional stuff. The first I'd say half feels more in line with an exploitation cult film while the second one's more like dramatic stuff although there's some real uncomfortable stuff i imagine that this is played at at least for dark comedy will upset some people but it was interesting and like when we hit a year and it's like okay maybe you should watch like private eyes the don uh knots or tom conway whatever the comedy is or something over that or or you know the seven mummy whips or whatever i'm like "Eh, well you know what I want to kind of hit up the Pedro Almodovar movie because, you know, he's a director I should know more about. I should watch more. And it's his first film. And I think it hits in a place of more interest, even as a cult film, you know, being a 1980 than those movies do. I'm sorry, but it's just true. And I found it interesting enough. Um, now it's completely bonkers and it has that uh, very good energy about it. Kind of energy. I enjoy like it, it feels very punk rock. That's the only way I can explain it. And the last bad boy here from 1980 that I'll probably be covering besides those big 1980 a look into is croaked frog monster from hell aka rana the shadow of the lake so this is by director here bill rabane now you may recall bill rabane because he had a box set uh wild wisconsin and i covered like eight of his films in there you know croaked or or rana was not in said box set um, which is kind of a shame. A couple of them weren't. Capture of Bigfoot, Blood Harvest, Renata also in the box set. But I've seen so many Bill Rabane movies. I've seen like now like nine Bill Rabane films, and this does not rank towards the top of his films. You know, I, I don't think so. I think Alpha Incident is his kind of shining star of his film career. I think that's actually genuinely a really good movie. So Rana, um, I feel like this kind of in line with some of his other films. A lot of his films... <laughs> They don't, they don't stand out as well, you know, like they've released it around the time of the William Graffay set, and I feel like Graffay's films are stand, a little bit more up my alley, but I will say Alpha Incident was, was quite good. So, Rana, what we have here is a, a strange structural, uh, again, a, again, a weird uh, structural kind of film, kind of like Night of the Demon from this year as well. So, this is listed as 81 on Letterboxd, it's 1980 on Intermittent Mood Database for you guys to know. So, it's kind of, kind of structural like Night of the Demon too, right, where we have this character, even though that one's completely bonkers structure. So, we have a guy... He's uh, talking about the the history of this place, and it goes to a flashback when he's a kid. And he starts talking about the history, yada, yada. What we find out is that he grew up around this lake, and there was a frog god named Rana. And this frog god caused a lot of problems for these kind of like weirdo poachers that were looking for this hidden gold and this this weird kind of hermit that's, you know, the red herring and, of course, other people amongst them. Um, this isn't exactly a great film. It's not the most fast-paced film. It's very dull, very talky until it hits a certain point. There's like a couple murders here and there. It's funny, you know, when you think back of all the Creature from the Black Lagoon ripoffs, not one has ever come close. Like, and you think of like a vampire film off Dracula or a Frankenstein film. It's like, there's been good ones or a werewolf film. There's been really genuinely great ones. Has there ever been a great Creature from the Black Lagoon inspired movie? I mean, there's inspirations are different, but one that's actually like a frog guy or an amphibious monster of sorts. I mean, Shape of Water, yes, but 
it doesn't really play like a, a creature rip or anything like that. I mean, you have Demons of Paradise. You have so many of these ones, right? Like, and, and just none of them really, really ever hold up. Uh, the the Sting, uh, Man of War, Sting, Sting of Death, the Griffey movie. It's just, it's just funny. Like, so the creature's got to be the cream of the crop. Oh, Humanoids from the Deep. I'm sorry. I'm sitting here talking about an 1980 movie that's not up to snuff with Creature from Black Lagoon. But then we have another creature kind of rip off humanoids from the deep, which I absolutely adore. So, Hey, I, I'm wrong here, but like, it's so like weird how little cool amphibious horror movies there actually are when there should be a slew of them. And Rana is, you know, I'm sorry. I don't have much to say about it. It's, it's boring. The suit is not great. There's a point towards the end where he actually attacks and some fingers get chopped off. That's entertaining. But a lot of it is just, you know, walking around a swamp, this one guy taking pot shots at some, some guys that shouldn't be there. And everyone's just rather lame and unpleasant. I'm sorry. It's just not much to say. It's not very interesting for me. It's not Bill Robain's best. It's not an amphibious monster movie best. It's not 1980s best. It's the last one I'm watching, probably, most likely. Maybe not. Who knows? I know. I have no idea when the 22 Shot show is going up. It could be a month from now, three months from now, whatever. But um, Rana, the Shadow of the Lake, a.k.a. Croaked Monster from Hell, is not worth your time for me. I would say a no. That's a no for me, dog, on Rana. Okay. So, yeah. All right, we're here for the third or fourth movie in the Universal Slot 4, technically third installment, and this is 1925's Phantom of the Opera, starring Long Chaney Sr. Um, Mary Something is the actress um, in this. She's going to be in the next two movies. I believe she's in The Cat and the Canary and The Man Who Laughs, so that's cool. Um, this is directed by, I can't think of his name, but he did direct The Cat Creeps, which is a lost film from 1920, which was initially on the list could not find it obviously it's a lost film and uh you might recognize some faces in this one i didn't even notice that that um the basically the heroic type is phoebus from hunchback yeah same i didn't even register that i don't know why um so yeah this is the classic story based off the novel and it's fairly close to the novel you know it's not too far off um I kept my problem with this was I kept waiting for like beats to happen from other Phantom adaptations I saw that weren't there. I'm like, where's the homeless guy and all this kind of stuff? And I'm like, I'm just mixing up all these different adaptations of it. Um, the star of the movie, um, the stage is great, and of course, you know, it's very fast paced. And Lon Chaney Sr. steals the show again as he does. And there's the obvious, very memorable reveal, which happened much sooner than I expected while watching this. Here, you got anything else to say? Or anything to say at all? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's fan of the opera. I, you know, so I like. I think I've seen like four or five different versions yeah, of yeah. this film. Quite a bit. Um, you know, pretty pretty straightforward. Uh, I feel like most Phantom stories are sometimes they they teeter like is the Phantom a good guy? Like in the Hammer ones, is he? You know, is he just a psychopath? Like in the book, and you well, know, some would say the musical. See, um, this one, he was disfigured, sorry. But I always always remembered him getting disfigured because of someone else, but that's strictly from the Hammer one and Phantom of Paradise, right? I think that is the Phantom, the Hammer Phantom. Yeah, um, and Paradise. And Paradise. And maybe Eric's Revenge. Most of the stuff I've seen Phantom is, um, you know, he's just born a freak. And, and it's been such a long time since I've read the book. Um, and I think think he's born a freak so it could be wrong but like i said i i've seen probably upwards of like six or seven different phantom movies over their 
the past 30 years. So it's like, I, I don't know how the Phantom came about. I forget. So the one they part I was it. very impressed with was how it opened up with the actual selling of the theater, just like in the book. Yeah. And they make the joke, like, don't, don't, Opera Box 5, don't use it. They're like, why not? Like, <laughs> no, don't use it. Don't use <laughs> it. Like, they go in there and genuinely see the shadowy figure and they come back and he's gone. For 1925, that was obviously a great scare. It was a good setup. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like two or three, I'd say, like, really great. Well, four. Four, four scenes with Lon Chaney Sr. that are really top-notch. Of course, the reveal. Mm-hmm. And, and when he's wearing his, like, get-up, his weird mask, it looks straight up for Mad Love, but which was, your like, a few years later, like, right. five years later. But I guess this wasn't released until theaters or whatever wide until 1930. I'm not sure how that works. So very close, much closer to Mad Love. I think Mad Love is 32, if I'm not mistaken. 33, somewhere around there. So, like, that part's great, the reveal. Mm-hmm. The ball is great. The ball is, is and that, fantastic. that's added in um, mm-hmm. when he's on the statue. When he's on the statue, it's, the it's just a neat image. Um, and and the last is him in the water. I thought it was really unique and didn't expect that. I didn't expect them to use the traps in the movie because they don't always use the traps like they should from the book. No, actually, I um, the whole going down into his lair and like having to like solve each of the different traps I thought was really cool. Very close to the book. This is the most faithful adaptation I've seen, to be honest. And the Hunchback was fairly faithful as well. These are just like... It's almost weird. It's almost like the, like, instead of, like, reading, like, the little, like, cliff notes from a book, you just mm-hmm. would watch this, and you would get kind of a lot of it. Oh, well, Hunchback, I think, does miss. It misses a lot. This one, I said, I meant on this one. Is the yeah, th- this one, I think, is maybe a bit more faithful, but I- I'd say that most of the Phantom movies tend to be a bit, a bit faithful, but you, there isn't a whole lot. You never seen Eric of, uh, Phantom of the Mall. I have seen Phantom of the Mall, actually. <laughs> Did it's, I It's, it's it? where... where um, they're going to build the mall in the suburbs, and they—I think they're going to take Eric's house or something. They, I can't yeah, remember. yeah, yeah. And they—they—they they, they, they burn the house down. And Eric gets disfigured, and, he, and then yes. five years later, they build the mall, and his ex-girlfriend's there, and it's like, it's Eric. I love him. And, and you watched it while I was watching it, so you were in and out, but you got the gist of Phantom of the Mall. Eric because Revenge. is that not just the plot of every Phantom? Redux. Uh, so, There's the the Phantom of the Megaplex, uh, or yeah, Phantom of the Megaplex of Mickey Rooney. I've never. That's seen a that Disney one. original. Oh, there's the Phantom of Hollywood too from the uh, the Warner Brothers release, which I've never got to see. So there's still a lot of good Phantom. There's a Phantom in everything. Phantom yeah. Paradise, obviously, is, a is a very fun one. Um, you know, when you got the stage production and and its sequel, hmm. which might come up at one point. It might. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, it is a silent movie. So it's like again right. hard to judge silent films, and I enjoyed it. It was fairly fast paced, mm-hmm. um, although it did get repetitive towards the end of the film. I felt like they kept hitting the same beats over, especially the chase. Yeah, um, but it is a very iconic scene. I think when the people are so afraid of the Phantom that he goes to pull something out to scare them away, and they think it's like this weapon or something, and it's nothing. It's nothing. It's just he he, he like. It's just crazy. And I didn't really know how this was going to end. Like, I didn't think he was going to die like that. I know we're spoiling these, but I didn't think he was just going to be beat to death by a mob. <laughs> Usually, like yes, the monster is like run off a cliff and falls in the water or knocked off a building or set ablaze in a building. They didn't usually like rip him apart like he's Mussolini. Right. And then threw him in the river and, you know, and then he comes back as Vincent Price later on. That's five. <laughs> but, um, no, I mean... It, like I said, it's pretty straightforward. I think that Lon Chaney looks amazing. <clears throat> um, I wasn't a big fan of hit of his mask, though. I, I thought it just looked kind of weird. It, it looked like um, da, Dr. Um, what the fuck? David Gale on um, Dr. Hill 
when he has like the thing carrying it and reanimator also the same for mad love it's all very similar it, it was just know? weird because it was like like it's one of those like it's uh, a very dummies they use for surgery yeah I it's think, a very you know? normal looking face like it's like a porcelain or something like still at the upper half of it like when it gets down to the mouth it's like a piece of fabric it's just it was like it's kind of weird i think what i like is the look of this phantom his face mm-hmm. but the mask of the one from the 40s which we'll be watching so i think that's kind of like what's become like the rendition of the phantom is this face of long cheney senior and the mask of the other phantom is how i had always picture him no i don't know what the other mask it's the looks white like. mask so the one that like is, is like in the everything musical. else, everything else. Which which and I would say that the the Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical um does use more of the of the Cheney face with the uh, does it actually have the Cheney face? Because very close. I mean, as much as they can do on stage. The nose. Oh, the, yeah. the stage play, not the Joel Schumacher one, which I when, when, to turn when off. I I couldn't watch. That. Yeah. So when I make reference to like. The musical Phantom of the Opera. I I really am talking about the stage production. Yeah, yeah there, there is a film adaptation of that production that Joel Schumacher made. Love it or hate it, 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 it is what it is. I mean, most musical adaptations or most film adaptations of a musicals, they're very hit or miss because every couple of years they change the musical around and they add this scene and take this scene out and and the movie the film version then tends to take, you know, 20 years of a, of a show's production history and make, like, the definitive Ultimate Edition, and, and they cast a bunch of stars because that's the only way they're going to sell tickets, and you end up with uh, Cats. Um, or Stomp or Clomp or some other piece Stomp, of crap. Clomp, um, so, <laughs> that's Simpsons quote. Anyways, this is the edition we watched, but there was, like, several versions with several different soundtracks. So we watched the first disc with the original music composed performed by Ally Orchestra, which was made way down the line. So there's two different like possible ways to listen to this. And we didn't watch the original 25 setting, which is wrong. We watched the kind of remastered, partially colored version and all this other kind of stuff. We, we watched the version that we believe is most preferred. Um, hopefully we were right. Um, no, we watched cheating. the first one on well, the disc. <laughs> the way they present it on Kino is the first disc. Okay. And right. usually you'd put the most preferred version on there. I don't know the details and it would take a lot of time. Um, so usually like, that's the one I think it was presented in 1930 with the, the, the ball scene and all that kind of stuff. And the ball scene, like when you see Phantom action figures, it's usually the Long Cheney Senior one without the mask, mm-hmm. and or it's either the ball one when the red. And the, we've, the I've red seen dance. both figures. They released a set, like all these Universal sets, and they, they was like different vol- like series, and, and they're both um, different series. I think they had different Phantoms as well. That's very cool. Like I said, mm-hmm. Long Chaney Sr. was clearly the king of this kind of stuff, and I could not start the Universal movies out without having Long Chaney Sr. because, like, without Long Chaney Sr., there's nothing. Like, really, when it comes to that kind of stuff, there's not anything. Like, special effects in general, right? Like, would you say he's the most important person when it comes to monster makeup effects of all time? I don't, about, very, I don't know about all time, but, but he, de- right? he definitely does, like, start, I think, you, you know, that, that movement. Not special um, effects and makeup, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, th- I think his stuff is fantastic. It's a shame that most of it is missing yeah. and gone and destroyed. Well, and, London After Midnight's the big one, right? You know, you'll, you'll, you'll never see those. You know, but it's, it's weird lost media. Like, 
you know, we lose our shit trying to remember commercials and pilot episodes from the 80s. All that shit's recorded somewhere, though, because people you know, recorded everything. But but here you have, you know... Classic th- pieces of cinema. Japan lost, like, all their shit. Oh, yeah, for, like, the first, like, three decades of film. Like, like that stuff's gone. Like, and, he ain't ever getting it And back. you go back when Germany bombed Britain, how much art and shit was lost during there. That's never oh. coming back. That's oh, yeah. gone. Yeah, like, you know what I mean? Gone. That shit's gone. Like, like, like books, like, literature, all that guys. I think in, in the special features of uh, Hunchback, they, like, like sold the film for, like, that copper plating or something. <laughs> thing in it you know to get like seven bucks out and, of it. and you got to remember fucking pieces of the bible are gone like, right, the right. It's, 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 it's gone. gone like it's just gone permanent. So, like we're, we're yeah. just you know like like gone in a blink like like thank god i don't want to be around here anymore hey. anyways <laughs> I, I mean i thought it was a really solid movie obviously what can i say about it this one yeah it's, it's fan of the opera fan three and a half out of five only for the setbacks of it you know being like but i can't i don't even know how to rate these like i said i prefer hunchback just by a little bit because it's more epic, and I think it was just a bigger set pieces. It was a little more impressive, but I, I think I like the look of the Phantom better than the look. I, of the I think I prefer this one over um over the Hunchback. I think Hunchback's a better movie. I'd rather watch the Phantom again. Whatever I rated Hunchback, I rate this. Was that like a four, three and a half, four, somewhere around so, there? Yeah, right? this is yeah. fine. It's fine. John Stanley. It's good. It's it's better than fine. John Stanley's Creature Features, Phantom of the Opera, nineteen twenty five. Three out of five. Appreciation for the silent screen helps, but isn't mandatory for enjoying this oldie with makeup genius Long Chaney as an acid-scarred madman living beneath the Paris Opera House who frightens the Sopranos out of their tenors. Uh, based on Gaston Leroux novel, this universal classic has marvelous makeup and imagery that would inspire filmmakers for decades. Despite outdated acting techniques and staginess, this is a must-see. Directed by Rupert Julian, Mary Philbin, Norwood um, Norman Carey re-released in 1930 with sound. There we go. That's different. So the 30s version has sound. Kino video yesterday. Yes, there we go. There's also a 1943 version. And then we have a 1962 version. Then we have an 83 version, an 89 version, a 1990 version. And then we have Phantom of the Paradise from 74, Phantom of the Ritz, 88. And uh, what's this movie? Phantom 2040, The Ghost Who Walks. This is not related, but I think it's very fun. I, I mean, you know, fan, I think Phantom is one of the most over adapted. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't say overplayed. I was looking through the book. I'm allowed to peruse James O'Neill's Tear on yeah, Tape. Tear on Tape. Here's the. This is a lengthy review. Too. Just, just read the Amazon. Okay, it probably is used. <laughs> that book's falling apart. The Phantom of the Opera. I'm sorry, Phantom of the Opera, comma the. Uh, three and a half out of four stars. Good times. Nineteen twenty-five. NR seventy-five minutes. Don't read all that shit. Don't tell me what to read. Okay, good times. All this right. is really bad. Bad VHS company. Oh, like okay. SLP mode and shit. So this is like an inflated review, because um, I already read it. Uh, the first and best movie version of the classic Gaston Leroux tale is also one of the best silent horror films ever made. Cheney is unforgettable as the skull-faced Eric who courts a lovely young singer at the Paris Opera House from behind a blank mask, only becoming a monster when rejection and the hatred of others drive him to it. Cheney directed many of his own scenes and most leave an everlasting impression, his gliding into a mask ball as Poe's Red Death, the abduction of heroin Philbin through the glistening black catacombs beneath the Opera House, and, of course, the famous unmasking, which, believe it or not, still packs a jolt today. It does. If Cheney had made only one movie in his career to be remembered for, this would have been it. Some scenes were originally shown in an early Technicolor process, and the film was also reissued in a part-talkie version. 
It was remade in 1943, 1962, 1983, 1989, 1990, and as both the Phantom of Hollywood and the Phantom of Paradise. Not to mention Andrew Lloyd Webber's overpraised Broadway musical version. That's why you're mad about that review. Also, I don't know why I never put two and two together. The fucking Red Skull is just a Phantom of the Opera's face. What do you mean? The Red Skull's face is just a Phantom of the Opera. Like, it's 100% his nose, his structure. I mean, the skull's a skull. Nah, but the way it is with the nose and the still the amount of flesh on there. The Phantom of the Opera and Red Skull, look, they're the same. Wait, it's, so is Red Skull, does he have flesh or is it just a Red Skull? I don't think it's a skull. I think it's his skin has been seared and scarred into a boiling thing of grossness. I don't know. The Russians did it to him. They turned him red. I don't fucking know. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about so, the red skull. No, I, I know he got burned, and he's he's disfigured like every classic fucking old Marvel villain. I, I think he like, opened the Ark of the Covenant or something. And, like, <laughs> he was there in Indiana He shut it real quick. Like, he didn't melt. He <laughs> right. didn't melt enough. Like, uh, what is that? Is it the guy who melts? Isn't he the guy in Willy Wonka? The guy who's like the weird nerdy guy? I don't remember. He, he, he like put sunscreen on right when they opened it like, up. <gasps> and it's like, oh, I only got he had, partially like, melted. Block on there. Right. He, he now, now I'm going to kill America. I don't like that they didn't have the ghost opera ghost sign og like he used to in the book opera ghost original gangster there we go um next week is the 1927 version of cat and the canary which never heard of it it's been remade a couple times one of which i think from 39 is lost so we're not gonna be watching that one but we'll be watching the 1927 version 1927. and i don't remember if this was the one my grandpa saw i know there's a couple versions but he swore that this thing was scary as hell even though this one's listed as a comedy but hey he was old <laughs> his favorite was the wolfman I mean, I think Wolfman is, is a classic. I think well, Wolfman's like one of the best. Man. And yeah. when we do the end, the ranks, mm-hmm. Wolfman's going to be my top five. I know yeah, we have like, to rank these? We're going to have to pick our top ten like we did the hammer. I have to fucking pay attention? Yeah, I mean, honestly, though... Hey, remember we're supposed to do the top ten of, like, whatever... No, I don't. I don't remember that at you all. Don't, no, that never happened. No idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. We might take a little break um, just to watch a couple other, like, Halloween movies. I want to watch The Haunting, which is a huge blind spot. Probably, I think, the worst blind spot I have left. As far as like classic horror movies are concerned, besides some of the Universal titles, what's the haunting? It's the classic nineteen like sixties ghost story. It's like the benchmark for all ghost stories. Richard Johnson's in it. I don't know. All right, you're terrible. He's from Zombie. The boat can leave now. He's Menard and Zombie. You know who Zombie is. You know the actors in Zombie. You don't know anybody for anything else. <laughs> that's like all right. Well, we're done. You got anything else to say? <laughs> no, I never had anything to say a day in my life. All right, that sounds right, good. Bye. I like that. <laughs> All right, let's get into these questions, comments, concerns. I do not have a question of the week this week. Um, and I only have a few few comments, so it shouldn't take long. Um, T.S., I remember long, black-haired parka. Been here since the beginning. Thank you. Well, now I'm short, gray-haired parka. Um, Jason Bovey, was so surprised you had such a visceral reaction to Star 80, given the kind of flicks you gravitate to. I always thought it was a fantastic movie, with Eric Roberts' performance easily one of the best he's given, 9 out of 10. Yeah, it just must have been in my mind state, and just the way how real the realism hit. I am the Ice Lord. Excellent stuff. Always a great time watching these videos. Keep me up to date on what to pick up. Now, I don't get everything anymore. You know, like I said, I've been cutting back, so there's some other sources out there that you might want to want to check out and everything like that, so... Movie Junkie Reviews, the Dorothy Stratton story was okay as a TV movie. Feels like Jamie Lee Curtis was miscast, though. She tried to work with what she was given. I give the edge to Star 80, though. 
Horse Cinema. I've always liked Star 80, and yes, it's very disturbing to watch. I always catch myself with a cringe look on my face when I watch it. Mariel Hemingway is the granddaughter of Ernest Hemingway. I thought there was a relation. I wasn't sure how close it was. So let's get into this update. It's a decent update. Um, it's my, uh, my Vinegar Syndrome stuff came in, and I actually have not even opened the box. So I know people love when people just open box on camera, but I don't really do that because, hey, it's just... This is what it is. Okay, let's hop into this update. First up, the Amityville Horror. That's right. Uh, directed by, who is that, Stu Rosenberg, who did uh, Cool Hand Luke. It's got James Brolin in it, Rudd Steiger, and uh, Margaret Kidder. All great actors. Um, yeah, this movie, um, this is the 4K. It's, I've only seen this movie one time, believe it or not. And I enjoy it, you know. Definitely rewatch it in 4K. That opening with the house and the fall weather would be pretty damn cool. So, yeah. Anyways, no no problems having Amityville Horror in 4K, no doubt. And then what do we have next? The Iceman Cometh, which um, I believe is a Hong Kong flick. Um, the name I know. I, I'm not too familiar with it. Maggie Chin, uh, Chen uh, is having kind of a resurgence lately, which is cool, I believe. So, yeah, this looks cool. Um, always welcome Hong Kong and Chinese films on Blu-ray and 4K. So always very excited to see that. I'm sure this is a very entertaining movie. There's lots of cool stuff over there that has not got a good release here yet. Mutant Hunt. Boy, oh boy, we're talking about Mutant Hunt. Fun fact, one of the first things I ever put on my channel was a trailer for Mutant Hunt. Still there. Uh, this movie's nonsense. Um, I've seen the uh, old, I, I think I saw this on VHS originally, but I remember having the DVD that Full Moon put out, which was just a VHS rip. So this movie's bonkers. Tim Kincaid, also Tim Kincaid, I believe, did Breeders and Robot Holocaust, um, both ridiculous movies, in true Tim Kincaid fashion. Next up, we have Buried Alive. That's right. Now, there's like two or three movies, two movies around this time called Buried Alive. But this is, uh, who did this one? I mean, like, one has Robert Vaughn and one has Donald Pleasance, and I get confused. Oh, Robert Vaughn and Donald Pleasance are both in this one. The other one must have Herbert Lom. See, like, very confusing here. Is this the one that has the sequel? Is this the one without the sequel? Uh, anyways, I'm sure it will all come out in the wash, right? I'm sure somebody knows. I'm sure somebody knows. This guy don't know. This guy don't know at all. So then next up, we have... Um, the Vinegar Syndrome Archive, Red Sun Rising with Don the Dragon Wilson. I like these Vinegar Syndrome Archive covers. Um, Freaking Michael Ironside back there looking like a 90s goon. That's his, that's his best Ironside, 90s goon Ironside. So, yeah, looks fun, looks entertaining, looks probably absolutely ridiculous. I, a lot of these, like, action movies from the 90s, like the early 90s, late 80s, I definitely rented as a kid or so on television. I used to watch all that shit, loved it. So we have The Fun City here. We have Married to the Mob. Um, Jonathan Demi movie. Looks like Dean Stockwell on the back there. Fun City. Um, yeah, there we go. Not too familiar with this movie, but Fun City always does good work, so I definitely want to support them. I still need to watch their last release and hear very good things about it. But we have Culture Shock here. Devil Rider, which I think is from 91, um, which I missed for 1991. I don't know anything about this movie, so I just saw this and I was like, what is this, man? I don't really know this. If I saw the title, that's basically it. You got a skeleton on the back. This looks weird and cheap. Original VHS cut of Devil Rider. So, yeah. He kills for the thrill. That's a great tagline, guys. Must have took all night on that one. So, yeah. Anyways, uh, looks fun. Next up. Scooter McRae's 16 Tongues, director of Shattered Dead. This is a weird and wild movie. You know, Scooter McRae's movies are very bizarre. And he only did the two films. I was hoping he'd get more. Maybe, maybe after both these movies are released, we'll see some more uh, films by him. But both interesting. Uh, Shattered Dead is one of my favorites, if not my favorite SOB. So, 
maybe besides bloodletting and maybe redneck zombies but you know those are all top notch for me we have kfc now this sounded really disgusting and weird and i do not know what the hell to think of it like reading the plot this is from the decalogue and i was just like oh no no i have to have this this just looks like it's just made for insanity like i have no idea yeah, only extreme fans of extreme cinema need apply. Jeez, birth, movies, death. So I'm maybe I'll watch this. Maybe I'll watch this tonight. Make myself sick before I leave for uh, Wasteland. Viva Erotica. Now this is a Hong Kong flick, and uh, this is who did this one? Um, I can't think. A Cat Three title though. So I grabbed. I think this is more of like a love story, weird story here. And uh, what is that company? Kana. Kana did this one. So this is limited. And, uh, you know, I collect the Cat 3 titles. So, oh, that's a familiar face. I've seen this guy in a bunch of the stuff I watched for 91 and 94. I can't think of his name, though. But anyways, yeah, this is 1997. That's towards the end. Um, the Hong Kong kind of run like that of crazy movies. So, yeah, that's all I have. Uh, next week will be Wastelands Update. And now, don't expect too much. I'd only really assume, like, two or three titles. I'm, I'm going to kind to go quality over quantity. Um, you know, uh, like I said, got to save money, save money. So, anyways, I'm out. Okay, guys, thank you very much for watching, and as always, have a good one.